HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, it's Jessica, and this is Cutting the Curd. My guest today is Tanaya Darlington, a.k.a. Madame Fromage. Tanaya is an educator and an author, and she has a new book out, Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It, From the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. Tanaya, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hey, Jessica, thanks for having me on. I know a lot of people are um, probably familiar with at least one of the things, the many things that you do for the cheese industry and in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, And so um, I'm really excited about this new book because it's been a while. I've been following you on social media, your travels, your time working abroad. So the new book, you're back in the United States, you're back at your home base. Tell us about the inspiration behind this book after having done, you know, some of the things that you've done over the last few years. Sure. Well, I did a cheese uh, book in 2013 with DeBruno Brothers here in Philadelphia. They were the the shop that inspired me to start a blog and really develop a massive obsession with cheese. So I credit them for being just terrific educators. Um, And then I took kind of a dog leg over to the world of cocktails. My brother and I uh, did four cocktail books together and we were always pairing cheese alongside, but I did begin to kind of float away from my cheese life and, and miss it. And I just felt like I wanted to write a cheese book that went beyond just explaining particular cheeses. I felt like um, the audience for cheese had really grown since I first started writing about cheese and that they were interested in things like pairings, stories, um, travel ideas. 
And also just say that over the years, I've heard from hundreds of people who would message me or, or back in the days of blogging, you know, leave a comment saying, I work as an ex, but I feel called to the world of cheese. I just have no idea where to begin. So I really wanted to write a book. In my mind, it was going to be like a yearbook full of faces and kind of opportunities in the world of cheese, exciting events, because I wanted people to have access to the cheese community. So that was one of my goals of this book was not just to, to offer like a reference guide, but really an entry point into exploring cheese in a really exciting way. It's funny that you mentioned uh, at the beginning about, you know, that pull back to cheese. I, mm. I also had that experience. <laughs> Do tell. Um, yeah. Where I, I kind of, you know, after years on the counter and then getting involved in a project that was equal, equally exciting and slightly related. But after a while, I was like, no, I, I want to get back into the cheese uh, industry. But it was also, you could have swapped out the word industry for community. Mm. And, um, and so I definitely see that in your book. Like now that you're describing it, there is that thing about like getting engaged and getting involved. You mentioned... Um, a lot of a lot of aspects, um, entry points for people to participate in, whether it's personal travel or create going to a cheese shop, or if it's like participating in something like um, attending the uh, Cheesemonger Invitational. So yeah, that's a lot going on in this book, but there's a lot going on with cheese. <laughs> it's so true, especially compared to like when I started, which was like, you know, kind of the mid 2000s. And I felt sort of like this lone wolf out here screaming like, cheese is so exciting. Um, but there, there, there wasn't the Cheesemonger Invitational at that time. And there wasn't really anybody um, to converse with online, except for the occasional cheesemaker, you know, who would mm -hmm. email. Um, yes, and they emailed lots of group emails and forwarded. Yeah emails. Right. <laughs> and now I feel like maybe this is something good that came out of the pandemic. When I scroll around, you know, Instagram or Facebook, like there is just so much happening in the cheese world and people are educating and offering each other things and taking people places. And it feels like there's this giant ball of energy behind the world of cheese. So, um, you know, in 15 years, it's just, there's been a metamorphosis. So that is really exciting to see. And I feel like social media for, um, some of its evils, I feel like it is a great uh, coagulator of personalities and interests. So you do, yeah, and you do a lot of instructing and sharing of content in person, but you also have done that online a lot, whether it's in short format videos or instructing online. And so what's the differences for you or the pluses and minuses of doing things in person mm. versus online? Sure. I really got into it at the beginning of the pandemic because I was hearing from cheesemakers and cheese shops that just cheese wasn't selling. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, what can I do? Instead of just taking beautiful pictures for Instagram, maybe I can start making some videos or doing more instructional posts that will help people um, approach the cheese counter with a little bit more um, education behind them, a little more confidence. 
And so literally I just started doing videos about whatever I was making in the kitchen, whether it was like a salad with halloumi croutons or my excitement over um, a new goat cheese maker in the area who dropped off some, you know, a, a goat CSA. I just, I just tried to kind of um, show like what a cheese life could look like, <laughs> look like on the inside. <laughs> Granted, I'm a little upset, more, more obsessive than most people want to be, but I did feel like I heard from a lot of folks who would say, oh, I've always seen that cheese. I didn't really know what to do with it. Or I had had no idea that sheep's milk was so easy to pair with all kinds of booze and red wine and I'm drinking a lot. So let me start eating sheep's milk cheeses. So <laughs> it was a really nice way to connect. And I also feel like social media, um, I have like my moments where I'm just like, am I done with this? And then I think, well, as long as there's like an educational portion, I, I stay interested in, in it. Like if I'm learning from other people about cheese on Instagram, then I'm excited in those accounts. If I'm able to teach a little something or just give like one little like hint or tip or share a fun pairing, then I feel like I understand its purpose. Otherwise, sometimes I get a little lost on there. <laughs> and now you return again uh, in another medium, the book mm. and, um, and you familiar territory for you. So what is it about the book form that is oh. so exciting for you? <laughs> that's a great question. Well, I studied fiction writing. That's like what I got my graduate degree and I was an English major, like a women's studies minor. Um, so I've always loved words. And I think the thing I love most about cheese is the way people would talk about it, stories behind it, the descriptions of, of flavor, even words like, you know, eyes in cheese or cabbaging like a flaw in cheese or the nose of a piece of brie. Like I loved the kind of the imagined, the sort of whimsy of cheese words. So that's really what hooked me. And I, I love books, just being a writer. I love books. This is, I think, number eight for me. And uh, I wanted to write a book that was just fun and one that someone could like read before bed or read while they were eating lunch or read before going to the cheese shop and just get ideas. You know, as much as I, I love the online world, I also think there's something about being able to browse through a book that gives you ideas. Usually in the morning, I always start out with a little bit of reading and then I wind down at night with a little bit of reading too. So I find it very grounding, just like cheese. And I love books like this one where, yes, you could sit down and read it cover to cover, but you could also just open it and yeah. read a two pager, like a, a profile of somebody or, um, just a, a small thing about, um, seasonality of milk, which honestly that alone was like, I was like, this is, this is it. This is why I want this book <laughs> like that oh, little I'm section so you had. Yeah. That actually really goes into beautiful, precise, um, detail without, without getting in too much into the science and such, um, with illustrations about the seasonality differences of milk. Um, can you talk a little bit about the organization of the book? Because you divided sure. it into parts that I think are really interesting. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. You know, when I submitted this as a manuscript, it was like double the size. And I really with my editor really trimmed this book down, but one of my main goals, <laughs> when I started out and was just brainstorming was I wanted to start with milk. And I, I had this image of these four glasses of milk that would give a person an overview of the seasonality of cheese. Because I think we think of fruit and vegetables as cheese, but people don't in this country think of cheese as seasonal. 
Um, so I start out with this like section on discovery, learning about pastures, learning about how things like elevation can affect cheese and um, some great makers in the world who are making terrific cheeses and, and why those cheeses taste so good. Um, there's also a little bit of an anatomy lesson and a brief you know, history of cheese making. Um, and then there's a series of eight adventures where I take people through different styles of cheese because I feel like in some ways... You know, you can go to a cheese counter and taste this or that, but in your mind, it becomes a little confusing, like how many styles are there and um, what really is a wash rind? And I thought the best way or the way that I taught myself about cheese was to eat, you know, a whole summer of blues or to just like deep dive into wash rinds for six months. It's kind of the way you learn about beer styles and wine styles too. And I felt like no other book had really taken people through cheeses like this. And a lot of people want cheese board advice and, you know, they get the idea from just about every source that you've got to have a, a cheese board with three different milks on it. Sometimes I think just having a board with three different cheddars or three different hard cheeses or just three different sheep's milk cheeses can be so, you know, just like personally, you know, just educational, frankly. So um, I wanted to encourage people to really develop an understanding of the different cheese styles. And then there's a section on entertaining followed by a last section called Keep Learning, which is just resources. It's a list of American cheesemakers by state, something that I was always looking for. Um, you know, lists of great books for starting a lactic library and also lists of some cool destinations and festivals, events, that sort of thing. And you highlight people in the world of cheese in your book. Um, I noticed in particular, Sue Miller is featured pretty prominently. She obviously had a pretty significant impact on you. Can you tell us about um, tell us a little bit about why um, you selected the people you did, and um, and in particular, tell us a little bit about about your connection to Sue Miller because I found that really sure. wonderful. You know, when I moved to Philadelphia from Wisconsin, um, <laughs> I really missed cheese. I mean, it's bizarre because if I'd stayed in the state of Wisconsin, I'm sure I never would have started a blog called Madame Fromage. But I got here. I was a little homesick. I started going to the cheese shop because I was just used to having a lot of cheese in my life. Um, I started a blog as kind of a lark because I was teaching writing and my students were blogging. And I thought, okay, let me experiment with this platform. I put it up one afternoon. I called it Madame Fromage because I thought it was kind of fun and I love the theatrics of cheese. So I thought, all right, let me create this personality called Madame Fromage. And, um, and then I felt really kind of ooh, weird about approaching local cheesemakers because I thought well, they're going to wonder what is this you know woman up to. So I kind of stalked Sue Miller. I, I ate her cheeses. They're, uh, she's a great cheesemaker here in Pennsylvania and finally got up the courage to talk to her at a farmer's market. And she was so nice. I had been really intimidated by her, you know, just because I'm like, you know, outside of the circle of cheese at that point. And she was so kind. She, she invited me to her creamery, which was very, very tiny at that time. And you know, she was just pulling in milk cans uh, from her farm down the road and making it in this little vat offsite. And she invited me in to watch her make blue cheese. And we just became 
fast friends. If you're in Philadelphia and you love cheese at all, you probably know Sue Miller. She's such a figure here and sort of in the state of Pennsylvania in general. Um, she works with raw milk. She's farmstead. Um, and she's just this wonderful, wonderful personality. She, there's a coziness about her that everyone just loves. So I thought, okay, I want to include Sue Miller and I want to show the day in her life because she works nonstop from like dawn till, you know, bedtime. And I thought, does anybody know what the schedule of a cheesemaker looks like? So I said, Sue, can I put your schedule in there? Um, and then there is like Griselda Powell, who's behind the counter at Murray's. I met her and she told me how cheese changed her life. You know, she'd worked a telecom job and then driven to Vermont to go to a spa and accidentally started driving driving around following a cheese trail. And that had like taken her whole life's, you know, professional course to the cheese counter. And she, you know, she left telecom. I, I wanted to include people like her and like Sue who are in the industry and they have stayed in the industry. Like once they found it, they stayed in it. Um, another person I loved interviewing was Olivia Haver, who's now here in Pennsylvania at the farm at Doe Run. At the time I interviewed her, she was the wash rind specialist at Jasper Hill no, she had been a stand-up bass player. Like that was her major. And then she had found cheese and she had driven to Jasper Hill, basically insisting that she work there. And she had gotten this job like sponging little wash wine cheeses all day. And she just loved it. She told me all about her tools and, and it's kind of connection to music and the pride she took in creating these little stinky cheeses. And I just felt like people have to hear these stories. And these are the stories that sometimes you just, you don't hear when you are at a cheese counter necessarily, or certainly not if you're grocery shopping and you pick up a block of cheese and you just think, okay, I'm going to eat this cheese tonight. Um, but the stories behind the people in the industry are, to me, so riveting, so compelling, that I just felt like that was something I had to include. And all of the pages, more or less, are accompanied by really wonderful illustrations. Oh, I'm so, so glad you said that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it is all illustrations. There are no photographs in the book, It right? is. There's no photos. Uh, you know, when I conceived of this book, which is like 2017, 2018, I, I pictured it as this kind of like rock and roll zine like paperback. So I had a really different vision in mind, but I knew I wanted illustrations. At that time, there wasn't an illustrated book about cheese. And I felt like, oh, I wanted diagrams and boards and arrows going to things. Um, my first cheese book with the Bruno Brothers had been beautifully shot by Jason Varney, a local photographer. And I've, I have so many cheese books on my shelves of beautiful, like titillating looking cheeses. But I just wanted this book to feel a little bit more like, almost like something for the adult kids, like a bedtime story where you flip through it and you're seeing pictures and you're seeing animals and milk glasses and cheese boards and faces. And there was no way to capture all of that, I thought, in photography. Hmm. You know, it is a little bit of that DIY part of cheese mm -hmm. and, um, and I, and I get it as a Gen Xer. I totally know what you're saying. <laughs> I miss zines. Yeah. Somebody needs to make a cheese right. zine, like on a Xerox machine, <laughs> like, you know, like, and cheese, yeah. you know, and, but, but mm -hmm. the, the pictures, the drawings, I mean, they, they really capture, um, capture the cheeses really well. And, 
you know, after a while, I kind of forgot that they were illustrations because mm-hmm. um, the whole book, the color scheme and everything, it, it does, it does just, it's so cohesive. Um, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I did look at a series of illustrators, you know, um, like some mock-ups using different illustrators and some were very clinical in their approach. They almost look like science textbooks. And I just, I felt so strongly that the book needed to have, uh, whimsy and to feel really artful because I feel like those are two things that make, you know, cheese exciting is that often there's some whimsy involved. It's a crazy idea to make cheese, but then there's something really artful about artisan cheese. So I wanted the book to have that sort of homemade feel. Yeah. Well, I mean, also the cover is, um, embossed. Is that the right word? Oh, I know. I couldn't believe it. The cover is so luxurious and fancy. I love it. It's like a rind, right? It is like a rind. It, it is. It's, it's, it's really, it's really lovely. So we're going to take a break and um, let our sponsor do their thing. And then we'll be right back with more with Madame Fromage, Tanaya Darlington. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Jessica. This is Cutting the Curd. And this is our guest, Tanaya Darlington, a.k.a. Madame Fromage. And she has a new book, Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese. How to explore it, pair it, and love it from the creamiest breeze to the funkiest blues. So we were talking about the different sections in the book and how there are also boxes where you can just like, you cram a lot of really good info into, um, just like a section within a page. And there were a few things that you in particular included that I found really insightful. One is the counter-free cheese shop. You have a section Mm. on page 75, all about the new counter-free cheese shop. And yes, I've noticed that too. (laughs) Um, What other observations have you um, made recently in the cheese shop, cheese counter field? You know, I just have to speak to that. I did, when I started working on this book, I decided to go on this Paris cheese vision quest because I felt like I just didn't have enough background in French cheeses and um, they're such an important part of the cheese world. And um, 
that was really fascinating to me that because rent is high over there, they don't necessarily want new cheese shops don't want to, you know, have counter space take up half of the the square footage. So there's no counter and there's in fact like cheesemonger who functions a bit of, as a docent greeting mm-hmm. you at the door and then walking you with gloved hands through the selections and, and putting the cheeses in a basket for you and then taking you to the register or just ringing you up on, on their phone. And I thought that was really brilliant. It's such a personalized way to look at cheese. Um, you know, I will just say in general, the presentation of cheeses, especially in Europe, is always astonishing to me because they are able to use a lot of like greenery and straw mats and wooden boards in their cases. And so often it's like looking into these little fairy lands of cheese. Um, I wish we saw a little bit more of that in the United States. Sometimes I think cheese counters can look very utilitarian, very deli-like. And I understand that, right? We have different restrictions here. But I do think um, there's something very inspiring about going abroad and just seeing how different cultures and different cities um, sell cheese. Um, so I guess I would say that's my, my main observation. I do think that there's just a real growth in the United States right now of new cheese shops. And I sense that there are people who are generally, or, you know, very much excited about being in the cheese world and bringing a lot of new ideas. So, um, you know, we're seeing more cheese shops that have tasting rooms or after hours classes, things like that. More experiential, which I think yes. is and so essential to the American cheese scene because we most of us did not grow up uh, learning a lot about cheese or eating a lot of cheese. And so in the United States, I think counter or no counter, you just you you need to be educating cheese lovers however you can. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And also um, that travel. We love talking Mm. about traveling. um, And a lot of people do go to Europe, but also traveling even just within the United States, within your own state. Right. And like, I, you are the third person I have interviewed from Philadelphia about cheese. (laughs) I keep interviewing people from, from Philadelphia. There's really a big scene here. There's really a big scene here. Yeah. And And we love our dairy dignitaries who come to visit. Yep. So, you know, that is what is so fascinating is like, if you, if you just look in your own backyard, so to speak, um, I think people are starting to realize even in the cities, they, they can start exploring being on the lookout for cheeses that are made within, you know, a few Mm -hmm. hundred miles, sometimes even closer. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, you did go and spend quite a bit of time in Europe recently. Um, you wanted to say a little bit for people who may not be aware of what you did, but you went and worked abroad. Yeah. During the pandemic, I got, um, my Swiss passport, my mother's from Switzerland, and I'd always wanted to spend some time in Europe. And I felt like I'd spent a lot of time studying the American cheese scene. And I just wanted to broaden my horizons a little bit. Uh, I had an invitation from cousin of mine who was opening a restaurant in the country of Luxembourg, a place I'd never been, to come help him start a cheese program. And he said, Tanaya, if I give you a, a, a room in my apartment and I get you a cheese cart, <laughs> will you come over and help me? So I spent uh, six months in Luxembourg City 
my cousin's restaurant is called Oyo, meaning olive oil. And we had this beautiful, beautiful cheese cart on loan to us, which we dubbed the Ferrari. Because ah. it was a, 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 like an electric, an electric lady of a cheese cart. It had doors that opened and wheels and, and windshields, everything but windshield wipers, essentially. And so I created this little act where I'd come out around 9 o'clock as people were finishing their dinners. And I had this blouse with like really puffy sleeves that looked like wings. And I'd pull on what I called my driving gloves. They were, of course, rubber gloves. And I would just wheel the car around and say, you know, look at look at this ride. Isn't she beautiful? I'm looking for some passengers. <laughs> and then I would, you know, wheel on over to the table and I'd serve up a selection of six cheeses. We had soft, sexy cheeses in the front and the hard cheeses in the boot. And they could try whatever they wanted. And it was such a fun way to essentially meet new cheese enthusiasts because people who've had a nice meal, they've had a little wine and suddenly someone rolls up with the card and wants to chat with them. They were all in for the show. So it really taught me that table side cheese education is a powerful, powerful tool. Um, and then after that, I, I stayed on in Europe. I ended up living in Belgium for a couple of months. I also travel with a company called cheese journeys Anna Jewell is the founder. We've worked together for the last 10 years. And so I led uh, a couple of cheese journeys with her to Italy and France. And um, essentially took a year off from my life in Philadelphia, took a, a year off from my job and just did a, a major cheese exploration. That's so exciting. So you did talk a bit about your experience and also love for pairing with different drinks, alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And you've included a lot of resources in the book, this really great, um, there's a whole guide in here about at a glance drink pairings. It's two pages. It's incredible. You can work your way through it. What are some of your favorite pairings or like, what are you enjoying lately? Um, I feel like, my most recent, like, just, like, little delicious nibble was a Montgomery's cheddar with a little bit of smoky scotch. I love right. a bandaged cheddar with a, with a scotch. I also, I'm a big lover of, of green tea, and I love green tea and fresh cheeses, especially goat cheeses. Um, I'm going to teach a soft cheese class virtually on Sunday, and that's one of the pairings that we'll have in that class. Um there's a lot of great pairings that didn't go into this book, Jessica. I have to tell you, I have a whole <laughs> section on crazy the pairings. Uh, the next book, right. Like one <laughs> of my favorite combinations, which I had the other day, is mezcal and buffalo milk cheese. Wow. I really love mezcal. And for a long time, I was looking for like the right cheese to pair with it. And not everything seemed to clash. But there's something about mezcal and like a bufarolo, which is sort of a, a cheese to me that has almost like a miso-like quality that just is really beautiful together. So that's a combination I love. Um, I mean, it goes on and on. I also love chartreuse, this really herbaceous French liqueur. I love that with an herbaceous sheep's milk cheese. Mm. Um, I love a bijou, which is a beautiful classic cocktail with, with chartreuse with a wrinkly-rinded goat cheese. Um I'm just a person that I think I'm always, I always have cheese around. And for the longest time I had a giant wet bar because of all the cocktail books my brother and I were writing. So it would just be like, okay, Amaro, what can I pair with? Well, <laughs> turns out Amaro is really great with blue cheese, but it took me a while to get there. So I love a, I love a pairing challenge. 
<laughs> There's always something new to discover. I love that. Exactly. And, and I also love in your book because, you know, the conversation in the cheese community is to look beyond the, uh, the European, you know, influence on cheese in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're really, Mm -hmm. conversations really starting to look at the cheese traditions that don't get as much attention. And you have, yes, which is very exciting. Yes. And you have a map in your book that, um, highlights some cheeses from other parts of the world. Can you say a little bit about some of those cheeses or is there something in particular, is there a cheese in particular that, that you want to, that you you've been enjoying lately that you want to highlight here? Well, I'll tell you, there's a cheese on this map and on this map, it's 20 wild cheeses to explore around the world. Um, some I've had many I've had, but some I have not, but like they've been on my bucket list for a while. One of them um, is a cheese from Mexico called Bola de Ocosingo that was at the American Cheese Society Conference this year. Uh, There was a wonderful Mexican cheese tasting and uh, a group of Mexican cheeses were driven up by mongers 39 hours from Mexico to Des Moines, Iowa for this tasting. It was absolutely incredible. And that's a cheese that looks a little bit like a softball. It has like a almost like a a provolone-like exterior, so like a skin around it. And then on the inside, it has this almost powdery cheese. So it's like a cheese within a cheese. And that powdery interior, um, kind of curdy, powdery center, tastes like passion fruit. I've never eaten a cheese that was so wild. It's like, it was almost like walking to a room full of orchids where you're just like, what is this smell? I ate that cheese and I thought like, oh my gosh. And my whole life of, of eating so many cheeses, I've never had this flavor profile before. So that was a cheese, an artisan cheese that I thought was absolutely uh, exquisite. That's a real favorite. Um, some of the others that are mentioned in this uh, section are like Yetost from Norway, which is that weird caramel cheese made entirely from whey. Um, there's a cheese called Montserrat made in Puerto Rico that I think is a really fascinating cheese, one of the only firm cheeses in Puerto Rico. Um, Australia, I mentioned Anthill, which is a a cheese from Australia covered in freeze-dried green ants. And those green ants taste a bit lemony and citrusy bright. Such a fascinating, fascinating cheese. Um, Then I also mentioned Sakura, a cheese from Japan, which has a marinated cherry blossom pressed into the center, and it's just exquisite. So I hope, you know, the end of this book and this wild map, which amazingly appeared in Newsweek a couple of of weeks ago, it was excerpted. I hope this wild map just opens people to the excitement of cheese wherever they go, wherever you travel. You know, you might not think of of a place like Colombia as having cheese, but oh yes, you can go to like Whole Foods and get boof mozzarella and it's a water buffalo cheese made in Colombia. So, you know, you can get some of these cheeses here in the United States, but in some cases you might want to travel and then seek out interesting artisan makers and uh, discover a new cheese that you can't have at home. And I do want to mention before we um end this conversation the cheese ball the cheese ball the cheese ball thank you for mentioning it yes the first time i ever (laughs) heard of such a thing it was um your production and um now i feel like everybody 
wants a cheese ball. Like it's become just like, it's a thing that everyone has. But the first time I ever heard it was associated with you. So can you tell us about the cheese ball? How did that start? And and it's coming back. It's coming back on October 21st here in Philadelphia. I'm calling it my cheese ball and book party. It's the fifth cheese ball that I've hosted. I've tried to do one every other year, although we skipped over it during the pandemic. But essentially, I rent a social club in the Northern Liberties neighborhood of Philadelphia. It has a cabaret on one floor where we build the city's largest cheese board. It's on top of a pool table, and uh, everyone in the cheese community brings a hunk to share. And then there's a cheese lifeguard, as we call it, who kind of like arranges things and helps people, you know, figure out what's what. And then upstairs, I do like a sampling salon with local makers. And so there'll be a lot of PA cheese makers there, um, along with boxcar cheese driving up from North Carolina, mystic cheese coming in from Connecticut. So people from within the region. And it's a chance for people in Philadelphia just to sample great cheeses and meat makers. And then uh, the last part of the cheese ball, we have a DJ or sometimes a live band. This time it's a DJ, Lola Kinks, and we have a big party and we dance. I always say the dress code is anything from barnyard overalls to something ballroom fabulous. Mm -hmm. And people come in everything from capes to lederhosen to wedding dresses to um, cheese costumes. Like they come, you know, dressed as favorite cheeses. Uh, So it's kind of a weird, wild, wonderful party. I use it as a fundraiser um, and also just as a way to thank the Philadelphia area cheese community. Tickets are on sale on my website, by the way, madamfromage.net. That's great. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, and I just need to know that first time, that first year you held the cheese ball, what did, what was the response? Like, what was the reaction? Oh, (laughs) well, people were like, this is so weird and wonderful. I got (laughs) French name tags where everyone said like, bonjour, je m'appelle. And then we wrote down whatever our favorite cheese was so that, you know, it was like, oh, hello, you are Sheepsog or you are (laughs) Stilton. And so, you know, I wanted to create a party where people would actually talk to each other. And then we built this giant cheese ball, sorry, cheese board. And it was this just wild dreamscape that people ravaged. And it was really fun to see what cheeses people brought. I just intended to do it as a one-time event. It was actually a birthday. And I just thought for my birthday, I just want to throw a giant cheese party. And then it was so much fun that the next year I made it bigger and I opened it up to the public. Um, but it's very DIY. It's not sponsored by anyone. I do it all myself. I just am with volunteers and it's, it's not a moneymaker for me. It's just really a gift to the cheese community and to bring new people from the Philadelphia cheese world to the cheese table. It's for the love of cheese. For the love of cheese. Well, I love your new book. It really does stand out, uh, as its own type of book, its own style of book. There's, there are so many cheese books out there and each one kind of has its own, you know, finds its way to have its own place on the bookshelf of cheese books. And, um, this one is so much fun. And I thank you so much for joining us on cutting the curd. I'm so, I'm so happy you were able to be here. Me too. I'm so happy to hear your response to it. And I just want to thank you so much for continuing this show. I've been listening since the very first episode. So, oh. so happy to be here. Well, we love to hear that. And I just want to say to all of our listeners, one way that you can help Cutting the Curd and to help our audience grow is that wherever you're listening 
to us, whether it's on um, iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform is to give us a review, give us some stars. We would love five, but, um, but that is a great way to keep us going and to let more people know about us um, is to get the word out through reviews. You can also always find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And we look forward to having you guys back at Cutting the Curd in the near future. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.